A development in this week's case was announced by the Riverside Police Department on the 3rd of August 2021. It happened during the days between the editing of this episode and its scheduled release, whilst I was away with family. This section will come at the close of the episode. In 1966, 18-year-old Sherry Jo Bates was a co-ed at River City College, a public community college situated in downtown Riverside, about 80 kilometres east of Los Angeles. In the late 1960s, Riverside had a population of around 130,000 and had the reputation of being a peaceful, quiet and safe place to live, work and study. Sherry had been a prominent honours student in high school and had continued to live up to her own high standards at college and could often be found studying at the campus library. On the evening of October 30th, 1966, the official police timeline says that at 9pm, Sherry left the campus library, heading to her green Volkswagen Beetle to make the short drive to her family home. When Sherry had not returned by his bedtime, her father, Joseph, began to get worried. However, he decided that perhaps his daughter had decided to stay out late for some reason and had forgotten to inform him. He went to bed concerned, but assumed everything would be fine and that Sherry's absence was not sinister. By the next morning, Sherry had still not returned and her father, now desperate with worry, finally called the police. A short time later, at around 6.30am, Her fully clothed body was found by a groundskeeper on the college campus, in an alleyway on Terracina Drive between two uninhabited houses and only a short distance from the library. Her body was positioned face down. Her car was still in the library car park with the keys in the ignition. Sherry had been stabbed to death and there was obvious signs of a struggle. Sherry had put up a brave and desperate fight for her life. The naive innocence of the sleepy town had been shattered in the most brutal of ways and the aftershocks of this awful event reverberate to the current day. Persons Unknown is a true crime podcast dedicated to unsolved murders and disappearances. The podcast is based in Wales, UK, and covers cases from Wales, the rest of the UK, and the wider world. New episodes are released every other Monday. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Persons Unknown Podcast. For a list of sources, please see the episode notes on your app. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a review and you can help others get to hear about Persons Unknown by sharing and recommending on social media. Thank you so much for listening. Now back to this week's case. Sherry Jo Bates was born on the 4th of February 1948 in Nebraska. She was a confident person with a pleasant and likeable character, 
In high school, she was involved in the cheerleading squad and took part in organising and leading activities and school initiatives for her fellow students. Sherry was gifted musically and loved singing and playing the piano. She was also a keen seamstress and made clothes for herself as well as friends and family. She was popular with her classmates and was considering a career as a flight stewardess. She also had a reputation for being hard-working and earned the money to buy her Volkswagen Beetle through a part-time job at a bank. At the time of her murder, Sherry had been going out with her boyfriend, Dennis Highland, for two years. There are some reports that call him her fiancé. Dennis was at San Francisco State College, where he had an American football scholarship. Everyone in her life speaks very warmly of Sherry, describing her as a generous, kind and wonderful person. It's important to remember Sherry, as like so many murder victims, her story can be lost in the noise and chaos of an investigation as high-profile and infamous as this. Police in Riverside were certainly not used to dealing with many murder investigations, but previously every murder case they had worked on had been solved. It was presumed that this case, harrowing as it was, would not remain unsolved for long especially as investigators were able to find several clues at the crime scene. On close inspection of Sherry's Volkswagen Beetle, it was revealed that someone had tampered with the starting mechanism. It was hypothesised that the perpetrator had damaged the car and was then watching, waiting for Sherry to attempt starting it. He then used this opportunity to attack, or possibly as a ruse, offering some kind of assistance and leading Sherry away to a more secluded place. This pointed towards the offender already knowing Sherry, as he could identify her car. Several other forensic clues were found at the scene, including a size 8-10 footprint, said to be from a military-style boot. A men's-style Timex brand watch was found near the body that Sherry must have ripped from her attacker's wrist during the struggle. The watch was found to have tiny specks of emulsion paint on it. Had the killer been renovating his property? Or perhaps was he a decorator by trade? It is often stated that the watch was stopped at 12.23 or 12.24am. However, this is not a proven fact, and not all experts on this crime agree that this was the case. The watch could have stopped working after it was taken into evidence. Finger and palm prints were also taken from the Volkswagen Beetle. They were immediately checked against people close to Sherry, but no matches were found. Several strands of hair and tissue were also collected from the hands and under the fingernails of Sherry. Presumably, these were from the attacker and proof that Sherry had fought back against him. The autopsy showed that Sherry had died due to her right carotid artery being severed with a sharp instrument like a knife. She had multiple injuries over her upper body, including lacerations on her arms and hands, which indicated defensive wounds. She also had abrasions on her face. Swabs were taken from Sherry's body, but there was no evidence of sexual assault. It is worth noting that there were cuts on both breasts. 
the stomach content showed that Sherry had eaten a meal several hours before she was killed. The timeline for the day of the murder is complicated, and there are several points of contention. The basic timeline, often given in newspaper reports, is that Sherry went to the library at 6pm and stayed there until 9pm when she left for her car. It is known she returned to the car at some point, as the three library books she had checked out that evening were found inside the car on the passenger seat. It is then speculated that after failing to start the car, she was approached by a person offering help and possibly a lift home. She then walked with this person through the alleyway on the pretext that this was on the way to his car. The killer then used the dark and secluded cover of the alleyway to attack Sherry. Her body lay there until it was discovered early the next morning. It is worth digging a bit deeper into this timeline and going into some detail, as there are points that are disputed, and others that fail to make sense at all. So let's start at the beginning of that day. The Sunday morning of October the 30th, 1966, was pleasant and warm. Sherry Jo Bates started her morning by attending Mass at St Catherine's Church. She followed this by going out to have something to eat with her father. He wanted to make the most of the beautiful weather and take a trip to the beach, but Sherry declined the offer as she said she had an essay that needed to be written. Her father returned from the beach in the early evening, shortly after 5pm, to find a note telling him that she had gone to the River City College Library to study. Her father noticed that she had made and eaten a meal. The meal consisted of beef and cottage cheese. This seems to reflect the findings of the autopsy, as food consistent with these items was found in Sherry's stomach. Joseph Bates assumed he must have literally just missed his daughter, leaving for the library. At approximately ten past six in the evening, a friend of Sherry's reported she saw her in her Beetle car, heading towards the City College. She waved, but Sherry obviously didn't see her, as she did not wave back. An Air Force recruit came forward to say a green Volkswagen Beetle, driven by a fair-haired woman, had passed him, again heading in the direction of the City College. He said her car was being followed by a 1965 or 66 bronze Oldsmobile. From these accounts, it's estimated Sherry parked at the River City College just after 6.10pm. It would not have taken her this long to drive there from her house, and her whereabouts during this hour or so are unknown. Four men who were questioned by police say that they saw Sherry by her parked car at the library at around 6.15pm. It can be supposed that Sherry arrived in the library shortly after this, as one student said he saw her there near opening time, and the library opened at 6pm. A library assistant said he thought he saw her in the library that evening, but could offer no specifics regarding timings. No other witnesses recall seeing her in the library that evening. Other students who were friendly with Sherry were in the library between 6.30 and 6.40pm, but did not see her there. 
neither did they see her in the car park struggling to start a car. One can only assume that Sherry entered the library and found the books she needed and checked them out herself. This was standard procedure and explains why the library assistant is vague regarding his account. It's unlikely that she returned to the car at that point, as the four men questioned by police said they were hanging around and chatting in the car park until around 7.15pm. They said they saw nothing suspicious and certainly didn't see anyone tampering with Sherry's car or notice Sherry returned to her vehicle. Other friends of Sherry's were studying in the library from 7.15pm to 9pm and none of them reported that they saw her in there during this time. They all remembered seeing the four men hanging around in the car park at 7.15pm. So where was Sherry? It's unlikely she was killed at this time, as several witnesses say that before 9.30pm her body was definitely not in the alleyway where it was later found. At 9.30pm, a student said she saw a man smoking a cigarette in the alleyway where Sherry's body was later found. They both said hello, even though they didn't know each other. That police were later able to retrieve a cigarette at the scene lends credence to the student's story. Between 10.15pm and 10.45pm, a scream was heard from the alleyway by a local resident who was returning home after an evening out. Another female ear witness also said that she heard the scream, after which there was a two-minute silence, followed by the sound of a car engine starting up and driving away. A month after the murder, a letter composed on a typewriter, which bore the ominous title of The Confession, was received by the Daily Enterprise newspaper. In the letter, the writer boasted and bragged about the murder. The common held belief by police at the time was that the communication contained several details about the murder that had not yet been released to the public. On closer inspection, some investigators, both official and armchair alike, believe all the details in the letter had been released in the press at various points over the previous 30 days. In the confession letter, the writer says that they watched Sherry enter the library before tampering with the car and then proceeding to lie in wait for her return. After about two minutes, he said Sherry came out of the library and returned to the car and when she couldn't start it, he approached her and asked if he could assist. He says she was quite happy to chat with him and she willingly came with him when he offered to walk her to his car and then give her a lift home. When they got to the alleyway, he told her she was going to die and attacked her. He claimed he grabbed her around the neck, throttling her, before slitting her throat. He implied that she died without putting up much of a fight. He says she was like a lamb to the slaughter, though he does mention that she emitted a solitary scream. He says he attacked her for all the times she had brushed him off over the years. This letter does seem to contradict some of the things we know from the timeline and Sherry's autopsy. If the killer tampered with the car shortly after she entered the library, why did the four men say they did not see it, or see Sherry return to the car? Also, the letter implies the murder was carried out soon after this, 
but we know that Sherry's body was definitely not in the alleyway where it was found until at least 9.30pm, and the scream from the alleyway did not happen until 10.15pm. Something isn't quite right about this letter, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not from the killer. Could he be deliberately creating an alternative narrative to draw attention away from himself and the real sequence of events? What we do know is Sherry entered the library sometime near its opening and left a short time later. She was not in the library again that evening. Even if by some miracle she was able to stay undetected by her friends and acquaintances in the library until 9pm, no one leaving the library at the time noticed anything strange in the car park. Far more importantly, the scream was not heard until 10.15pm. There is also ample evidence that Sherry did not go willingly to her death, as the confession letter implies, but put up a fight. It would appear that Sherry left the library at around 6.30pm, but went somewhere else at that time, possibly to meet someone she knew. At some point she returned to the car. From there, she ended up dead in the alleyway. True crime writer and researcher Richard Grinnell makes the point that perhaps the car was not incapacitated when she returned to it. Maybe she returned to the car with the person she had been with over the previous few hours. This person, perhaps angry and frustrated at his spurned advances, may have broken the car then and there to prevent Sherry leaving. Both the driver's and the passenger's windows had been rolled down implying that two people had been sitting in the car. Around the time of the confession letter, another disturbing piece of information came to light. In December 1966, a piece of prose was found scrawled on a desk at the River City College Library. It seemed to be written by a person reminiscing about a previous knife attack. It read, quote, Sick of living, unwilling to die. Cut, clean. If red, clean. Blood spurting, dripping, spilling. All over her new dress. Oh well, it was red anyway. Life draining into an uncertain death. She won't die this time. Someone will find her. Just wait till next time. R.H. End quote. It certainly sends a chill down one's spine to hear this poem. This was found almost two months after Sherry's murder, but no one knows how long it had been there. Perhaps this poem was written months before, anticipating the murder. Or perhaps it was written after Sherry's murder, looking forward to the next much has been made of the letters R.H. at the end of the poem, with many believing it to be the writer signing off with their initials, though it may be something entirely different. Of course this poem could be completely irrelevant to the case, and simply put down to the doodling of a morose art student. The opinion of a leading handwriting expert means that this piece of prose proves very significant in this story, and may yet be key in unmasking a killer. More on that later. 
six months to the day after the murder, on the 30th of April 1967, the Daily Enterprise, the police and Joseph Bates, Sherry's father, all received handwritten notes which purportedly came from the killer. All three recipients were sent a note with handwriting similar to that used in the scrawled desk poem. The notes to the newspaper and the police read, quote, Bates had to die. There will be more. End quote. The note to Sherry's father read, quote, She had to die. There will be more. End quote. It must have been terrifying and upsetting for Joseph Bates to receive this note, and it was obviously sent on the six-month anniversary for maximum effect and to cause as much emotional pain and uncertainty as possible. Was this the killer reliving his crime, or a person unrelated to the crime, seeing an opportunity to feed off the hurt of a grieving family and community to obtain his sick thrills? In the early stages of the investigation, as one would expect, Sherry's boyfriend Dennis was looked into extensively. There was no evidence pointing to him and he was soon dismissed as a suspect. Police thought that the crime looked to have been carried out by someone with knowledge of the campus and its layout. It was unlikely that the murderer just happened to choose a murder scene in between two uninhabited houses which would obviously aid his escape. There proved to be no quick solution to solving this crime, but over the course of the next two years, a prime suspect began to emerge in the eyes of local investigators. This suspect has never been named publicly, but he is commonly referred to by police and true crime writers and researchers as Bob Barnett. This is not his real name. This person is someone who knew Sherry and may well have had an on-again, off-again romantic relationship with her. One theory is that Sherry had returned from seeing her boyfriend Dennis the weekend before her murder and told Bob Barnett that things were completely over with him and that she wanted to settle down with Dennis. This caused him to kill Sherry out of jealousy and anger. There are some reports that Sherry was seen arguing with Bob Barnett on campus a few days before her murder. Despite police suspicions, they never had any solid proof to charge Bob Barnett, and apparently he moved out of the country sometime later. In 1998, advancements in DNA technology meant that the hair and tissue samples Sherry had managed to claw from her murderer could finally be tested with the hope of a worthwhile result. At this time, their prime suspect, Bob Barnett, returned to the USA for a visit from living abroad. Law enforcement used this opportunity to issue a warrant for his DNA to test against the samples. Hopes were high, but the results came back as not a match. Nevertheless, some investigators still hold this man to be the person most likely responsible for Sherry's murder. They claim they are not completely convinced that the hair samples belong to the assailant. In October 1969, Riverside Police detectives became aware of similarities between Sherry Joe Bates' murder and an attack on two people 
at Lake Berryessa in Napa County, California. Napa County is about a seven-hour drive from Riverside. Cynthia Shepard, 22, was stabbed ten times and her friend Brian Hartnell six times. Cynthia died of her wounds two days later, but Brian survived to tell the story of what had happened to them. A man had approached them, dressed in an odd costume and brandishing a gun. He made out that he was an escaped prisoner and was going to rob them. Instead, he tied them up and proceeded to stab them. Nothing was taken and no sexual assault was carried out. The man nonchalantly walked away after the attack. The killer left a scrawled message on the side of the car Brian and Cynthia had travelled in. This crude note, written in felt pen, referenced two other attacks. The first was that of David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, who were both shot and killed whilst parked in their car in a lover's lane called Lake Herman Road in Vallejo, California, shortly before Christmas 1968. The other attack was similar and involved a man and a woman who were attacked in a car park in Blue Rock Springs Park, also in Vallejo, on the 4th of July 1969. Darlene Farron and Michael Majot were both shot numerous times. Darlene died on the way to the hospital, but Michael miraculously survived. The scrawled message on the car door concluded with the symbol of a circle and crosshairs. It was a symbol the police and press were familiar with. It was now the infamous signature of a killer who not only had committed multiple acts of murder, but enjoyed taunting both the police and newspapers about his crimes. It was the calling card of the self-monikered Zodiac. Zodiac is an unidentified serial killer who killed at least five people between 1968 and 1969. He gave himself the Zodiac name in a series of letters sent to the San Francisco press. The letters boasted of his crimes and taunted the police, although they were often rambling and confusing. Along with the letters, Zodiac also sent cryptic codes that needed to be deciphered in order for the message to be understood. Some were cracked almost straight away, one as late as 2020, and others still remain a mystery to this day. In these ciphers, he promised to reveal his identity, though in the ones that have been solved, this has not happened. As well as the victims that have already been mentioned, Zodiac murdered 29-year-old taxi driver Paul Stein on the 11th of October 1969. This is the final confirmed murder of the Zodiac killer. Although the letters continued and he claimed to have murdered many more victims, although none of these were ever proven. The letters continued sporadically until 1978, although the veracity of some of the latter ones in particular is very much in doubt. When detectives first noticed the similarities between Sherry's murder and the attack at Lake Berryessa, many were convinced the crimes were connected. Following careful analysis and a probative investigation, the Riverside Police came to the conclusion that Sherry's murder was not linked to the Zodiac crimes. They said there were too many differences between the crimes, 
and they were convinced that the person who killed Sherry knew her and was part of her life in some way. The connection between the Bates case and the Zodiac killings was first popularised in the press by San Francisco Chronicle journalist Paul Avery. Over the years, however, Avery also distanced himself from the theory and came to the conclusion that they were unrelated crimes, though he did think there was a possibility that Zodiac may have written the Bates confession letter and handwritten notes as a way of taking credit for something he didn't do, an accusation that is often levelled at Zodiac. There are those who continue to hold the belief that Sherry Jo Bates was a Zodiac victim, perhaps his first. The handwriting of the letters and writing scrawled on the desk could point to this. Handwriting expert Sherwood Morrill has stated that the Bates handwritten notes and the desktop poem were written by the same person who wrote the Zodiac letters. Not only does the handwriting match, but there are certain turns of phrases and mistakes that are common in both the Bates letters and the Zodiac letters. The word twitch is misspelled as T-W-I-C-H, and the word squirm is used in both sets of letters. Both refer to the concept of murdering someone as a game. A symbol similar to a Z is signed at the bottom of the Bates letters. Zodiac himself made reference to the Bates murder in one of his letters, but this was after the Avery newspaper article, so this could well have been Zodiac taking credit for something that he didn't do. Of course, there is the possibility that these letters were written by Zodiac, but he was not the murderer. He could simply have been laying claim to the murder and perhaps used it as inspiration for his own series of killings, starting three years later. There are several Zodiac suspects who had a connection to Riverside and are said to have lived in the area at the time of Sherry's murder. This episode will not provide an in-depth analysis of the entire Zodiac case, but will briefly focus on a few of the suspects who have links with the town of Riverside. Arthur Lee Allen first came to the public's attention in Robert Graysmith's book Zodiac, though in that work he was known by the alias Bob Hall Star. He had been on the police's radar in the case since the early 1970s, and for many in law enforcement, he was the main suspect. He is probably the most well-known Zodiac suspect, partly because of the 2007 David Fincher film based on Graysmith's book. He was a former teacher who had been convicted of molesting his students. He was single and lived alone in a trailer. Alan can be linked to several Zodiac crime scenes. He also wore a Zodiac brand watch and had the same rare Wingwalker military boots as the Zodiac killer is said to have worn. He is said to have boasted to a friend about the idea of killing people and using the alias Zodiac to commit these crimes several years before the attack started. Michael Majot, who survived an attack by Zodiac, later picked out Alan's photograph as the man who shot him, though it must be said this was over 20 years after the attack. Shortly before Alan died of cancer in 1992, the police obtained a warrant to search the trailer where he resided. Police found pipe bombs and other suspicious items in the trailer, 
but nothing that could actually tie him to the Zodiac killings. There are numerous more pieces of circumstantial evidence put forward to support Alan as the Zodiac Killer, which could take up several episodes of this podcast. What is important to note is that Alan's handwriting was not a match to the letters. Alan was ambidextrous, so both hands were tested, and his finger and palm prints did not match those taken from the Lake Berryessa attack. Alan's DNA was also found not to match a sample believed to be from the Zodiac Killer. Alan also looks nothing like the famous Billy sketch of Zodiac. In terms of Alan's link to Riverside and the Sherry Joe Bates murder, it is rumoured that he was in the town over the weekend that Sherry was killed, though apparently he later claimed to have been in Pomona instead when he heard about the murder. Alan only took one sick day in 1966, and it was the 1st of November, the day after Sherry was found. There is nothing that directly ties Alan to Sherry, or the River City College campus library, or the actual murder. The next potential Zodiac suspect, with links to Riverside, seems to have used two names interchangeably, Richard or Rick Marshall, first became a suspect in 1976, after self-incriminating comments he made to friends were reported to authorities. Rick Marshall, as we will refer to him, was a ham radio enthusiast and made these comments over the airwaves and allegedly at his house as a gathering of fellow radio hobbyists. Rick Marshall worked as a silent movie projectionist at the time of the Zodiac murders and later as a radio engineer. He lived in Riverside during the mid-1960s, but it is unknown if he was still there when Sherry was murdered. Like Arthur Lee Allen, there is only circumstantial evidence linking him to the Zodiac killings. He is known to have had a similar typewriter to that used in some of the Zodiac letters. He was known to have a house with a basement, something that is uncommon in the San Francisco area, but that the Zodiac made reference to also having. Marshall was a movie buff, and his favourite film was The Red Phantom, a film that is referenced in the 1974 Zodiac letter. He allegedly made the statement to his ham radio buddies that he had found something, quote, more exciting than sex, end quote. His appearance is also somewhat similar to the police sketch of Zodiac. Of all the Zodiac suspects, a man by the name of Ross Sullivan has by far the strongest links to Riverside, especially to the City College campus. Ross Sullivan worked as a library assistant in the same campus library that Sherry visited on the evening of her murder. His colleagues at the library gave his name to the police as they were suspicious of him. They said he was odd and made others, particularly women, feel uncomfortable. They mentioned that he had a penchant for dark poetry and said he was not in work for some days following the murder. They also said he always wore a similar outfit to work, but this changed following the murder. Police did follow up on the library staff's suspicions, but they dismissed Ross Sullivan as a suspect, saying he had provided an alibi. Despite this, campus library staff were convinced that Ross Sullivan was involved in Sherry's murder and voiced their suspicions and concerns 
often over the following years. Sullivan had bipolar disorder and possibly other mental illnesses. He spent much of the remainder of his life in and out of mental hospitals and it is believed that he died from a heart attack aged just 36 in 1977. Again, much like Marshall and Allen, all of this is purely circumstantial. One wonders if Ross Sullivan was not the victim of being judged because of the mental illness he suffered. People who live with mental illness still encounter a huge degree of ignorance, prejudice and lack of understanding in 2021, and the awareness of such illnesses in the mid-1960s was far less than today. One thing that can't be denied is that Ross Sullivan is an absolute dead ringer for the police sketch of the Zodiac suspect, and this is definitely the main reason he continues to linger as a suspect. One recent development concerning Ross Sullivan as a suspect is the decoding of the 340 cipher. The 340 cipher was the second cipher sent by the Zodiac, and so called because it contained 340 characters. In December 2020, a team led by David Aranchak and mathematician Sam Blake announced the code was finally cracked. The message itself was not particularly informative. It did not divulge any groundbreaking information about Zodiac, but when the code was deciphered, a collection of seemingly random letters were left over. N. O. S. R. V. S. Perhaps this is not random at all, and actually a distorted anagram and knowing nod to Zodiac's true name, Ross Sullivan. This does seem a bit of a stretch, and the only thing it proves is the continued fascination with Ross Sullivan as a potential suspect. The final suspect we will examine for the Sherry Joe Bates murder is not linked to the Zodiac killings and does not have a name that has been made public. According to an article by Tammy Min in Inland Empire magazine, a woman contacted the magazine in 2008 and put forward the name of a brand new suspect. The man was said to have been a college mate of Sherry's and the woman claimed she had been raped by him. After the rape, he warned the woman not to tell anyone and threatened that he would do to her what he had done to Sherry Joe Bates. The suspect is said to have been an athlete in college, but had suffered an injury which later led to an addiction to painkillers. This man's name was passed on to police, but it is unclear what the police did with this information. The murder of Sherry Joe Bates destroyed the lives of her family and tore apart the innocence of a community. Only three years after the murder, Sherry's mother sadly took her own life. The figure of the Zodiac looms large over this case, and perhaps to the detriment of finding the truth. Sherry's family has said they do not believe the Zodiac killer was involved, and hold to the belief that Sherry knew her killer. We know that despite the writer's cruel taunt in the confession letter, Sherry did not go like a lamb to the slaughter, but fought like a lion. Let us keep fighting and telling her story, so that one day we will know what really happened in that alleyway on that October night in 1966.
a recent development. On the 3rd of August 2021, cold case detectives from the Riverside Police Department updated their website concerning the Sherry Jo Bates case. The news regarded the handwritten notes received by the police, the local press and Joseph Bates on the six-month anniversary of Sherry's death in April 1967. They said that in 2016, an anonymous letter was sent to investigators from somewhere in the San Bernardino area of California. The letter was not handwritten. It had been composed on a computer. The author of the letter said that he had been the writer and sender of the handwritten notes in 1967. He apologised for sending them and said it was a sick joke. The writer said that he was not the killer of Sherry Jo Bates, nor the Zodiac, and was just looking to stir up attention for himself. In 2020, the cold case team at the Riverside Police Department and the FBI genealogy team sent the stamp that had been used on the letter for DNA analysis. The details are scant, but this process eventually led the investigators to the person who matched the DNA profile on the stamp. The man was interviewed and admitted being responsible for the letter. He had been a young and troubled teenager at the time and was now very remorseful for what he had done. The police confirmed that this person was not involved in the murder of Sherry Jo Bates or any of the crimes connected to the Zodiac Killer. Their statement went on to say that Riverside detectives were not part of the investigation into the Zodiac Killer underlining the fact that they don't believe Sherry's murder to be linked to the Zodiac killings. In terms of Sherry's murder, they said a potential suspect emerged very early in the investigation and continues to be their main focus. They are hopeful that acquaintances of the suspect hold information which will crack this case and lead to a successful prosecution. I'm making the assumption that the person the police are referring to is the suspect known as Bob Barnett. Again, this is not his real name. You can read the update in full on the Riverside Police Department website. On first reading, it appears to say that the author of the 1967 handwritten notes has been identified. But on closer inspection, the statement actually confirms only that the person they interviewed is the sender of the 2016 letter. The wording seems to be deliberately ambiguous. It never confirms whether the confessions in the letter regarding the sending of the handwritten notes in 1967 were true. The part about being a troubled teenager at the time they wrote the letter, singular, could be read as referring to 2016 rather than 1967. I have scoured the internet trying to find some answers to these questions and to see what others involved in the true crime community make of this news. But in truth, it is very early days, and as of yet, there is no concrete information out there. Hopefully, more details will come to light about this development over the coming months. I will release an update if and when this happens. The Riverside Police update did not make reference to the typed confession letter that was sent to the press and police a month after Sherry's murder in 1966. The author of this letter is still unknown. There was other information regarding a separate set of letters sent to police in Northern California. 
the author of these letters claimed to be the Zodiac, but investigators traced the author who admitted sending the letters in an attempt to keep the investigation into the Zodiac going. As this episode is not focused on the Zodiac murders, I will not be delving into that element of the information at the moment. The police statement concluded with information about a $50,000 reward that was offered in 2021 by an anonymous individual for the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for Sherry Jo Bates's murder. Anyone with information about the murder can contact investigators by emailing cjb at riverside.gov. Anyone with information about the Zodiac murders can use this link https colon double slash tips dot fbi dot gov. If you are interested in delving deeper into the Zodiac Killer case, I recommend these two podcasts Monster, the Zodiac Killer, and Zodiac Speaking. They are both excellent. <laughs>